with the preaching of God's holy word. Let's turn to Colossians 4. <clears throat> this is our last sermon in Colossians. At first glance, it might look like this is just salutations and departing greetings and things of that sort, but there's some richness to be found in these uh, closing verses of Colossians 4. For context, we'll pick it up a little bit earlier uh, in verse 7. This is God's holy and infallible word. Colossians 4, starting at verse 7. As to all my affairs... Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, that he may encourage your hearts. And with, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. For he comes to you, for if he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is also justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who was one of your number, a Bond slave of Jesus Christ sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him <coughs> that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heriopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nymphia, uh, and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which, with which you have received from the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Let us pray to the Lord. <coughs> we ask our blessed Lord that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds to understand this, your word, that you would help me uh, by your Holy Spirit to speak with clarity and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to receive this, your word, to learn how to pray, to learn how to encourage one another, and even to learn how to challenge one another. For we ask all these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. When I first began my walk uh, with Christ, I was living in college in Monroe, Louisiana, and um, I asked one of the elders if I could spend time with him and walk with him, one of the elders in the church who's also what they call the campus minister. And um, he and I decided that maybe a good time for us to spend time together was uh, while walking. He wanted to lose a little bit of weight and get his cholesterol down or something of that sort and lower his blood pressure. So he said, well, let's go for walks. So we used to walk the levees in Monroe, Louisiana. And... Uh, 
that was where I first heard of the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's where I first heard of Jesus Christ paying through his ministry. That's where I heard of Jesus Christ paying not only for some of our sin, past sin maybe, but for all of our sin, past, present, and future, and also Jesus Christ imputing to us that righteousness. He also mentioned a passage we learned in, from Sunday school about Zechariah, uh, Joshua the high priest having those filthy garments taken off and being put the clean turban on his head, that right, which represents the righteousness of Christ. That was the first time I heard all of that was in college, walking the levee and also other times fellowshipping with this elder. Um, that was over 23 years ago. I still remember the conversations. I still remember him also giving me advice on how to handle a, sometimes a disagreement with a, a fellow um, roommate or a guy that I shared an apartment with while in college. So it was not only theology, but practical help as well. And uh, that was something that I remember, that encouragement and that guidance that I had received from that elder in the Lord made a great difference in my life. We often don't realize how much influence we can have on others when we encourage one another and when we challenge one another and especially when we pray for one another. What comes from our lips and especially with our Christian walk in life can make a huge difference in the life of another person. Uh, So it's not only encouragement with our lips but by our Christian walk and example. You know, you might... I sometimes wonder, what would my life be like now if God didn't put certain people, all these Christian people in my life? What would my life be like now? What's interesting is that today's text teaches that even the holy apostle Paul received encouragement in the Lord through fellow Christians. You might ask yourself, well, what would Paul's ministry be like, or would have been like, if he didn't have the encouragement of fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord as well. Would he have had the same ministry? Would he have had the same influence? Would he have even written all of these epistles? I don't think so. God used the encouragement of fellow believers even to hold up and help the Apostle Paul in his ministry. We don't know what Paul's situation is um, was during this particular text, except that in verse 9 mentions him being in prison for the gospel um, and it goes on, um, but if you, if you look at other epistles, you find more details about his prison experience and witness. Um, this uh, Holy Spirit that inspired Paul to write to the Colossians, the same Holy Spirit did not influence Paul to put down the details. Perhaps they weren't necessary for us. There's a, a fine scholar who's gone to be with the Lord named Dr. Hendrickson, and he actually analyzes this epistle in comparison to 2 Timothy 4. And he shows that this is actually Paul's first Roman imprisonment, whereas Paul had a second Roman imprisonment. If you combine this with Philemon, which Philemon, I believe, was a letter that was sent probably at the same time as this Colossian epistle, Paul's telling Philemon, please prepare a room for me because I'm going to come to your house. He's expecting to be released at this time. But then he ends up going back to a Roman prison later on in his life and dies of execution. 
But if you look at uh, the end, the key to knowing that there's a second Roman imprisonment here is that if you look at verse 14 of today's text, there's a mention of a greeting sent by a man named Demas. But then it's all, this is printed in your introduction to your outline here. In 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, which is considered a much later book, 2 Timothy 4, <coughs> Paul mentions that Demas abandons him. The same man abandons him. A, a, a great period of time has passed, likely years, because Demas, who gives a greeting in this epistle, later on abandons Paul, says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That's a clue that it cannot be the same Roman imprisonment. Now, as we look at today's text, we find that there were godly saints who were sincere, who didn't abandon Paul, who loved him, who encouraged him, and we want to learn from their examples as we look in today's text. As we want to summarize today's text, we'll see that God calls us to encourage, challenge, and pray for each other. God calls us to encourage, challenge, and pray for each other. We'll see this in three main points. Encourage one another, pray for each other, and lastly, challenge one another. Let's look at this first main point, encourage one another. Um, Paul mentions that there were some Jewish converts here who helped him, who encouraged him. Look at verses uh, 10 through 11 again. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Also Jesus, maybe you didn't know there was a second Jesus in the Bible, also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are only... Uh, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Again, Paul's life and writings would have been much different if not for those brothers in the Lord and those sisters in the Lord who encouraged him. The Greek word here, encouragement, there's actually two Greek words for encouragement in the New Testament. Um, one, the one that's not used here is the same word for paraclete, but it's, it's the verb form. Paraclete is the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the, the one who comes beside us and helps us along. This word that's used in this particular verse is more of, the translation is more of the sense of comfort. And really, when we think of encouragement in English, we think of encouragement in two different ways. Uh, a coach can encourage a player to be more and to do more than that, that player thinks he can do. That's sometimes a, it's a prodding, a pushing along. That's a, you could say that's encouragement. That would be um, maybe the other paraclete-type term. But in this particular passage, um, the, the second type or use of encouragement would be that one who sees someone who is maybe sad, may be discouraged and speaks a word of hope from the Holy Scriptures that they would not despair. This, that's comfort or encouragement in that sense. So that's what we have in the sense here in verse 11. It leans toward this second type of encouragement, giving words of hope in the, during the trials of life to help you endure the trials of life. Now, what 
exactly was the encouragement that Paul received. We don't know. It's not recorded here. But Scripture elsewhere does speak of an absolute necessity that we are to encourage one another. Not just pastors encouraging the flock or elders or deacons, but encouraging each one of us, one another. Um, I put that in your outline here, Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why we need encouragement? Because life is difficult. Life is hard. Making a living for you and your family is difficult and hard. But dealing with the consequences of sin can be even harder. When people lie to you or betray you. When someone sins against you in, a, in, a, in a, such a way, uh, some people become bitter or hardened by sin. Um, the term you could say is jaded. They become jaded. They you can see that look of apathy on their face. They just kind of look like they don't care anymore. Sin can do that. But the person who has lost interest in everything, uh, they might also lose interest in what is most essential and most worthwhile, namely even in the things of the Lord because of the hardness of sin. That's where you need to step in and encourage one another. Remind each other of the many reasons why we have not to give up hope. If you have saving faith in Christ, you have been given the greatest gift possible and imaginable in this entire life, forgiveness of all of your sins. Jesus has promised to prepare a place for you. Maybe you're discouraged about your living situation now. Well, you've got a much better place coming. It's a, it's a place that cannot be imagined a place of glory and splendor. Jesus described to the thief on the cross that heaven was paradise. To leave this world and to go to paradise is much better than being here in a world of sin and woe and hardship. But part of that encouragement also is to remind people that they are but pilgrims in this world. This world is not our home. If you are a believer in Christ, our, our home is in heaven where Christ is seated. That is our home. That's what we have to look forward to, and perhaps that's the sort of encouragement that the, uh, these men gave Paul. I want us to turn to another place, a word of encouragement that Paul gave to the church. Very important um, is in Titus, I mean, 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, next book over. Next epistle over. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 13. <coughs> if you're discouraged, this is a good place to look. That makes you get um, in a mindset of the eternal things to come. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Maybe your loved ones who've died before you. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven 
with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, if you're an unbeliever, this is not very comforting to you, is it? But if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, you trust in him, that is a great and glorious day to long for. That's what we should look forward forward to as a means of encouragement. Look also at how he says that we ought to pray for each other. And he gives an example of Epaphras. God calls you to follow this example of Epaphras. Look at the first half of verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Now, before we look at his prayer, we want to look at the person. Who is this man, Epaphras? Um, Colossians 1, um, if we go back to chapter 1, if you flip back there, <coughs> Colossians 1, verse 6 and following, it gives us a, 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 an explanation, perhaps, that he is very likely the pastor or the first pastor of this particular church. Colossians 1, starting at verse um, 6. Actually, we'll start at verse 3. We give thanks to God the Father for our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you always, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love with which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, how'd they get there? How'd they come to this knowledge? Verse 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who is a faithful servant in Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. The reason I say that this man was the first pastor is that he was the man through whom they first received the gospel. Now, he was not their current pastor. How do we know that? Because Epaphras is not there. He's with Paul. This man, Epaphras, uh, I believe, was someone who was instrumental in helping Paul perform his ministry outside of, while in jail. And yes, the man Paul could have a very fruitful, vibrant ministry while in jail. And partly it's because of brothers like this who helped him. You could say um, some like Timothy, would not, they were more than just a pastor. They were more like a, an apostolic delegate who represented uh, the apostle who even were able to go from city to city, appointing elders in various cities. Um, Maybe Epaphras had that sort of role here. But notice his prayer, second half of verse 12. Epaphras was always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, some of us may pray 
intermittently. We might pray on occasion for others. But look at this brother. He prayed, he labored earnestly in prayer for them, for these Colossians. The Greek word here for uh, laboring earnestly can be translated striving, fighting, or struggling. It's actually agonizomai, to work to the point of agony where the muscles burn. That's the kind of prayer he offered for these saints. He, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, prayer should be a delight. It should be an agony, but there should be a persistence and a diligence in it. And I think what it's talking about here was that he was a man who prayed repeatedly, consistently, persistently. He did so. He didn't give up. Just like Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord to receive a blessing for himself, this man wrestled with the Lord to receive the blessing on behalf of the Colossian church. He agonized with the struggle of wrestling with the Lord for God to bless his church. That's how we should really seek to pray for those whom we love. We don't say, well, I already prayed once for them. No. If you pray and God doesn't hear, you got to be like that persistent widow who doesn't let the judge sleep, but keeps on after him day and night where he gets no rest until he answers her prayer or her request to heed her case. That's the way that we ought to pray unto God. Paul um, told <coughs> Paul told the Colossians exactly why Epaphras was so motivated to pray for them. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heriopolis. And the New King James translates it as this. He has great zeal for you. Great concern. Actually, I like that New King James better. Great zeal for you on behalf of you. If you have a deep love or concern for someone, you pray for them. If you have a deep love for your children, you don't pray once or twice. You pray for them consistently, diligently, faithfully, repeatedly. Don't give up. Even for your grandchildren as well. If you love this church, pray for this church. Not just for the leadership, but pray for the members. And as I prepare for ordination, pray for me. Please. Notice that Epaphras prayed for the Colossian church members in a particular way. And he prayed for something special in verse 12. He prayed that they may stand perfect. That's only possible for anyone if they believe in Jesus Christ. You can only have a perfect standing if Jesus Christ has paid for your sin and Jesus Christ's righteousness has been placed upon you. That you, ha you have robes that have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and then you have that righteousness of Christ. Well, God doesn't see your imperfections and your failures, but he sees the blood of Christ and his perfect obedience on your, for your sake. That is how you may stand perfect. And that's, I believe, how he prayed for those saints there. But Epaphras also prayed that they would be fully assured in all the will of God. Now, the first time I read this, I was thinking of 
Epaphras was praying for their assurance of salvation. But that's not what this says. He's praying that they would be fully assured in the will of God. And I believe part of that would be trusting in salvation in Christ. But this is that someone who's a professing believer would be assured that even through hardships, even through trials, even through tragedies, imprisonment, sickness, illness, death of a loved one, that people would not turn away from the Lord knowing that God's will is for them and not against them. That you're never outside of God's will, but that you have a loving Father and a loving Savior who both hold you in the palm of their hands and they shall never let you go, no matter what trial or trouble may come. That's what he prayed for, that they would be fully assured in all the will of the Lord for their lives, the good and the bad. Notice the challenge as well. There was a a challenge here that they should challenge one another. An example here is an interesting one. In verse 17, Say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Now, who is Archippus? Uh, Some scholars say that he was actually a son of Philemon. Um, he's actually greeted in Philemon chapter 2. I'm sorry, Philemon verse 2. There's no chapters in Philemon. Philemon verse 2, he's mentioned as our fellow soldier. Again, he was a resident of Colossae. Um, but the challenge, so this challenge given to Archippus was to be read in front of the whole congregation. Now, normally if you have a young man and you want to challenge him, you'll, you'll tell him personally, maybe in an email, but can you imagine someone challenging me and writing it to the whole congregation? It's kind of what he did. He did here. He, he wanted this being read before the whole congregation. But there's a sense in which we do have something that is a, a challenge that's public, that's given. Um, we, we would call it a charge. And we'll look a little bit more at that in a, in a second. Um, the challenge Paul gave to this man is very similar to the challenge, or you could say the charge, that he gave to Timothy when he wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 5, printed there in your outline. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So he says to Archippus, fulfill it. You need to fulfill your ministry. And here he says in 2 Timothy 4, 5, fulfill your ministry. It's very parallel. It's likely that maybe Archippus was a relatively new pastor being mentored by Paul and others as well just as Timothy was being mentored by Paul. Now, I'm not an ordained pastor yet, Lord willing, by the end of the month, but I can say to the elders and deacons, God calls you to take heed of your ministry that you have received from the Lord that you may fulfill it. That's considered a charge um, that someone gives. Now, during the ordination service, it's almost like three little sermons well, maybe one big sermon. And then there'll be a charge to the pastor, which will be someone charging me, challenging me to the duty to fulfill my ministry. And then there'll be a charge to the congregation that you are challenged to receive the ministry and to participate and help and support the ministry. That's the sort of challenge or charge that's given here in verse 17. 
Now, to fulfill one's ministry means to keep one's ministry vows. If an elder, a deacon, or a pastor, you make vows before God and witnesses on how you are to serve the Lord in your ministry. And one of the places that talks about what the role or the ministry for uh, a minister is, again, is in 2 Timothy 4. Let's look back at that. 2 Timothy 4. Here's a challenge or a charge Paul gives. That's why we, we do that in the OPC. We have a charge. <coughs> 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's not just a charge for Timothy. That's a charge, I believe, for Archippus, or was a charge for Archippus. That's a charge for every gospel minister who has ever been upon the earth as well. Now, we're not, it's not just people ordained to offices that are given duties. Each one of us is given a duty from God to fulfill. Children, your duty is to obey your parents and the Lord but also to, to work hard and be diligent and faithful in your education so that you'll be prepared for your life's calling. Parents, your charge is to raise up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Husbands, your charge is to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, your charge is to be a helper to your husband, but also to submit in the Lord unto your husband. But as church members, each and Every one of us has a charge to keep our membership vows, to support the ministry of the church, to participate faithfully in its worship. And that's the charge that God calls for you to fulfill. God calls you to encourage, challenge, and pray for one another. Encourage one another while we still can call it today because there's a deceitfulness of sin that can harden people. Encourage one another with words of Holy Scripture. First and foremost, pray for one another. Labor earnestly. Agonize, you could say, struggle, wrestle with God in prayer. Like Jacob and like Epaphras. Struggle, labor, that you would receive the blessing not only for yourself, but for your, those you love, your family, your friends, your, your children. Challenge one another. Again, the challenge of your duties, it's not just one. Some of us have duties as parents, have duties as husbands, have duties as church officers, and have duties in our calling and our work, and many other respects that God would enable you by His Holy Spirit, by your study of the Word, to fulfill your duties to His glory 
to his honor and for the love of those whom you have in your midst. Let's pray together. Well, we do pray that you would help us and we ask that you would keep us and protect us. Help us to be sincere in encouraging one another and praying for one another. We pray that you would enable us by your word and spirit to stand perfect through the imputed righteousness of Christ and through the forgiveness of our sins only found in him. And we also pray that you would help us to be fully assured in your will that we would know that we are not outside your will, but, Lord, that you will ordain all things to come to pass. And we do pray that you would help us um, to bear under even the, the difficult trials of this life, knowing that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Bless your people. And, Lord, we do thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write this epistle. Help, we pray, by your Holy Spirit to write these things upon our hearts to remember them and apply them to our lives that we would grow in grace and bring you the honor and the glory to lift up Christ for all to see. For we ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. For our closing hymn, we'll turn uh, to our insert. Uh, it's actually 356 from the old Red Trinity. How beautiful the sight. This is a, a paraphrase of Psalm 133. Let's stand together and sing. <clears throat>